All right. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're all having a great day today. Uh, my name is Blake. It's my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look deeper into those verses that Amber just read to us here in just a moment. And I do want to echo what Drew said in his prayer and tell everyone happy 4th of July. Uh, this day means many things to many people. I'm not going to list all of those or speak to the reasons why they do. Um, I'm simply just going to say, um, for me, today is a day of gratitude. And I don't say pride. Uh, I never say that I take pride in what this day means. Um, not for, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> mainly because I don't know how I can take pride in something that I played no part in. Um, this may come as a shock to you. I was not alive 245 years ago when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, and truly, I had no control over being born in this country. Uh, it is purely an act of God's kindness that allowed any of us to be born here or to end up here. And I know there are many reasons why today people may not see being in this country as an act of God's kindness, but it is an act of profound kindness that God graced us with placing us here in this country. And so I say gratitude, and another reason that I say gratitude is because gratitude promotes humility. Whereas pride promotes arrogance, gratitude promotes humility. And that leads, I feel, to a proper confidence in the right things as opposed to a misplaced confidence in improper things. Knowing that it is purely outside of you that allows you to be part of something should lead to no grounds for boasting, but truly it should lead to humble thanksgiving. I was listening to a podcast the other day on the pessimism of some of the founding fathers at the end of their lives, and they were growing pessimistic over, the, over if this thing that we, this experiment that we call the United States of America would actually last and would actually work. Four men, all of who played a huge role in the establishment of this nation, at the end of their lives convinced that what they had given so much for was going to fail. And what stood out to me was the reason why each of these men had grown cynical and pessimistic. And it was for completely different reasons for each one of them. And what it all had to do with at ground level was where they were placing their hope. And we know this, and we have discussed it much over the last couple of years. Last year, as we spent all year in the book of Isaiah, this year, as we have been journeying through the book of Mark, when we assign ultimate value to things that are temporary, these things become idols and they lend our hearts to be what our hearts would worship. And this can be anything, especially freedom in our country. When we put ultimate faith and confidence in things that have no power to deliver what we hope they promise, we will always be left disappointed. And all of these themes, gratitude, humility, faith, confidence, they're at the heart of our passage today. We will see nationalistic identity brought up in this passage, but we will also see what true freedom looks like. We will see bold faith and simple 
humility. But at the heart of all of it, I pray that we are left being profoundly grateful for a Savior who knows our needs and knows our frame and that we will be moved to spread his fame to the ends of the earth. So we're going to pray together and then we're going to look at these verses together again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for how kind you have been to us. We thank you primarily for the kindness of giving us your word, of opening our eyes and opening our ears to be able to see and hear beautiful things that are written here. Father, if anyone is here this morning and has blind eyes and deaf ears, I pray that you would open them to the beauty of your word. May Christ be magnified. May our hearts be moved. May we worship you rightly. In Christ's name, amen. Mark 7, 24 through 37. Look along with me there as I read again. This is God's word. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Faftatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. As we have been journeying together in our time in Mark, these last few weeks especially, we have seen Jesus on the move. He's been traveling quite a bit. And in our text today, we are going to see him traveling quite a bit more. One source I read this week in preparation said that just in this text alone, it appears that Jesus travels over 120 miles in a short span of days. That is quite a bit of travel. Don't know if y'all are aware of that or not. And in our text today, it's not just the traveling that should catch our attention. It's going to be where Jesus is traveling. Today's travels are purely to Gentile regions. And this is going to be extraordinarily important to the context of the passage today. And today, 
as has been the case lately for me, when I've had the opportunity to share, our outline is going to be simple, very simple. We are going to look at the principal parties in our text here today. But today, instead of looking at them as individuals, we are going to look at them encounter by encounter. So let's jump together into our first encounter here, and this is Jesus and the woman. Now, right away in verse 24, something should catch your attention. Mark tells us that Jesus went away to Tyre and Sidon. Now, you may think this is a not important detail, but this is huge. This, as far as we can tell from recorded travels in the Gospels of Jesus, is Jesus' only trip outside of the geographical bounds of Israel. Now, you might say but he has ventured into Gentile country before, and you would be correct. But that was land directly connected to Jewish land that would have one time been considered Israel at times past. This trip is going to regions that have always been pagan. And why is he making this trip? Mark tells us Jesus needs to get away. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Now that seems like an odd statement, does it not? You're entering in somewhere, but you don't want anybody to know that you're there. And truly, what Mark is saying here is that Jesus entered this region because he didn't want anyone to know who he was. Now, why? Why would he do that? We don't really know. But what we can understand from what we have already seen in the text is that the rhythm of ministry that they were keeping and the debates that he was engaging in had left him worn down. Going this far away would afford an opportunity to unwind away from pressure. Pressure to debate and defend. Pressure to perform miracles. Pressure from family and crowds. But as we quickly see, this opportunity to get away was not to be. He enters a house, but he can't remain hidden. Why? A woman knows who he is, and starts begging him to heal her daughter. And notice what Mark tells us here about this woman's daughter. She is a little child. Now, we don't know her exact age, but this word here helps us understand this situation. This woman's daughter is being oppressed by a demon. And this woman knows that there is someone who can bring relief. And she begs him for help. And Jesus' response is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Now, this story has a parallel account in Matthew 15. And Matthew gives us some details that Mark does not. Whereas in Mark, this story moves right from the woman falling at Jesus' feet to their conversation Matthew gives a little more background context and lead up. Listen to what Matthew records in Matthew 15, 22 and 23. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. 
at first glance here, this should absolutely hurt our hearts. It really should. This woman whose daughter is being tormented by a demon comes to the only man who can provide help and she is completely and totally ignored. And her begging doesn't stop to the point where the 12 come to Jesus begging him as well to make the matter stop. Send her away. Now let's jump back to our primary text here in Mark. And here again, we pick up and we see her having fallen, laying prostrate at Jesus' feet. Now, there are some things that we need to understand here. First is the boldness of this woman. We don't need to belabor all the ways this was culturally unacceptable back in this day. But as way of reminder, this was so not kosher. For a woman to approach a man this way, not acceptable. For a Gentile woman to approach a Jewish man this way, not acceptable. For a Gentile woman to approach a rabbi this way, not acceptable. And just so we're clear, this is what she knew Jesus to be, a rabbi. Yet here she is following Jesus around, crying out in anguish. And finally falling at his feet, begging for his time. And begging for him to heal. And how does Jesus respond? Again, in a way that if we glance at this quickly, should pierce our hearts. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wait, what? A woman is begging for you to heal her daughter who is being tormented by a demon. And your response is, why would I waste my time giving something of value to someone of little value? This answer from Jesus is one that has led to much controversy over the years. Some use this as proof that Jesus was, in fact, not perfectly sinless because of what appears to be extreme chauvinism and nationalistic prejudice here. But is this what is happening here? No, of course not. There is always more going on and there is always something much larger that Jesus is wanting everyone to see. This statement that Jesus uses here is a parable. It's not a direct statement. Now, you may be thinking, Blake, this isn't how I think of when I think of parable. Well, that's fine, okay? (laughs) This is not a parable how we have typically seen them, but it is a parable nonetheless. Jesus is using metaphor here to make a point. So how do we know this? Well, we know this by the word he uses for dogs. The word for dogs here literally is little dogs or puppies, not chihuahuas, baby dogs. Okay. Now, why does this matter? 
Well, at this time, this was not a dog-loving culture like we find ourselves in today. Dogs were in some ways considered the lowest form of life. They were, by and large, not domesticated, and certainly they were not allowed in the home. But if a child saw a puppy and happened to bring it home, then the dog was allowed to come in and grow up around the family. So this is not Jesus calling this woman a dog. No, this is Jesus illustrating some things. But what is he illustrating? He is illustrating his his purpose in coming and his primary mission for his time on earth. And we see this from the text in Matthew. Matthew records Jesus saying in verse 24, And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay? So from understanding the word word dog there, we clearly understand that Jesus is not a misogynist. But doesn't this still seem like extreme prejudice here? Once again, we need to understand the parable. Jesus is painting a picture here for the woman. She has come asking something from him, and he is going to allow her to show him how much she really understands about who he is. But what Jesus is saying here is not untrue. He came to proclaim the gospel to Israel, unrepentant Israel. But that did not mean that he wouldn't proclaim it to Gentiles along the way. We've already seen this in Mark, that Jesus heals and restores those outside of the Jewish faith. This is why he's catching so much heat from the religious leaders of the day. This is why they are challenging him at every turn on matters of clean and unclean. God's plan has always been for him to have a people that are his, from all time, for all time. A people to show his glory to and to show his glory through. And even in the Old Testament, there was always a provision for the sojourner to come into the people that were his. What Jesus is declaring now is instead of having to identify as the people from a nationalistic, ritualistic way, it's a matter of the heart. And that is his message to Israel. But the task of global evangelism would be for the twelve and all who would come after. So back to the woman. Here Jesus is challenging her. And how does she respond to the challenge? With some of the boldest and greatest faith that Jesus has ever seen. Verse 28, but she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Please don't miss how amazing this is. Please do not miss how amazing this is. The boldness and humility of this woman here should convict us and move us in a deep way. What this woman is saying here in essence is, you know what? You are right. You are absolutely right. And I'm not sitting at the table with access to the meal for myself. But I am at the table expecting a crumb to fall. And for me, I don't need the meal. Just a crumb from you is more than enough to provide for what I need. Such humility 
and boldness in response to amazing grace. Danny Aiken says it like this in his commentary on Mark. What a magnificent picture of salvation we have in this story. Yes, Lord, we are all dogs under the table with no rights whatsoever as members of the family. I acknowledge I don't deserve a place at the table, but I believe there is enough for me on the table. Just a few crumbs will be enough. That I believe. And Jesus' response here is beautiful. For this response, you may go your way. Your daughter is healed. The account in Matthew is even more beautiful. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Boldness, confidence, great faith, beautiful humility. Tim Keller talks about the humility of the woman like this. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have assertion of our rights. We don't know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights. Standing on our dignity and goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness. Something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And I need it. Now, so a question, is this how we see ourselves today? Do we see ourselves rightly in light of God's grace? Not deserving of it, but welcomed into it. Not by anything that we do or can do, but only by what Christ has done. As we ponder that question, our text for today is not done. We still have one more amazing encounter to look at. It's Jesus and the deaf mute man. And from verse 31 here, we see Jesus and the twelve on the move again. They have now moved from pretty good ways up north, back down to the area around the Sea of Galilee, but still into Gentile country. And verse 32 shows us more people begging Jesus. Look there at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Where the encounter with Jesus and the woman had a lot going on and was a type of encounter that we had not seen before in the interaction between Jesus and the woman, this encounter is pretty standard fare for what typically happens with Jesus when people are brought to him. But is it? Is this typical? There is much going on here also that is out of the norm that requires us to quickly dive deep. Let's look at verses 33 and 35. 
And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephaphtah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. A few things here. First, Jesus took him aside privately. Why? Well, for one, not to make a spectacle of the man. But two, because everything he was about to do, he wanted to make sure that the man clearly understood. And where we may be left to feel that we encountered a lack of compassion, Jesus, with the woman. Everything we see in this passage just leaks compassion. And what Jesus does next is so tender and so specific. Jesus performs sign language to help the man. We've seen Jesus heal before. We just saw it with the woman's daughter. He doesn't need to do rituals for healing to happen. Now, back in those days, there were all sorts of things that people had to do to identify themselves as someone that actually had a healing gift. Well, we know Jesus doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to do this. So what is it with all of this stuff that Jesus is doing here? He's not doing this for himself to work up power to heal. No, he's doing this for the man so that the man will know what is happening. Why does this matter? Jesus speaking verbally would not have helped this man. He wouldn't have been able to understand. The tenderness and compassion here is that Jesus uses language that the man would know well. And then Mark's next words that he uses are interesting as well. Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs. That word for sigh there is actually the word for groan or moan. It is a word used more in line with pain than in relief. So what in the world is happening here? This is Jesus feeling the weight and pain of a fallen world. Broken creation. Devastation. Brokenness. Hurt. Pain. And this is also Jesus knowing what it would cost to make all of it right again. And we see this from a connection back to Isaiah 35 in this text. There's a word used here in Greek in this passage that is used only one other time in Greek in the Bible. And it is actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint in Isaiah 35. The word for speech impediment in verse 32 is the same word in Isaiah 35, 5, where Isaiah is prophesying hope for God's people. But for hope to come, Something must happen first. And that is what Jesus feels here with this sigh. Let's read Isaiah 35, 3 through 6 for context here. Strengthen the weak hands. 
Make firm the feeble needs, knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It should be so encouraging. But what has to happen for the eyes to be open and the ears unstopped? What has to happen for the lame to leap and the mute tongue to sing? The recompense of God. Divine retribution. Payment for all the sin. All the evil, all the wickedness. And who would it be that would have to bear all of that? Would have to take on all of that. Would have to suffer under all of that. Jesus himself for his people. Remember, Mark's aim in his gospel is to get us to the cross with urgency. And it is at the cross where Jesus would bear that weight, taking on himself all that our sin deserves. Taking on the isolation and agony and wrath that our sin should bring to us. Bearing all of that for sinners like me, like you. And why? Why would he do that? So that our blind eyes might be opened. And that our deaf ears might be unstopped. That our lame legs might set to leaping. And that our mute mouths might sing. Sing what? Of the immeasurable riches of grace that are shown to us in the suffering and anguish that led Jesus to his death on the cross. But our hope doesn't end there. It begins there because it was through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave that we have hope. And through faith in him, repentance of our sins, the promises of true freedom can be given to us today. So would you trust him? Would you trust him today? Whatever you're facing, whatever you or struggling through, whatever you are battling and dealing with and enduring, would you trust him today? And why would you trust him? Because he is the one who does all things well. Let's continue in our passage in Mark 7, 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Why would you trust him? Because he does all things well. He does all things well. So how do we respond to this today? I think there's four simple ways that we respond. First, we respond with humility. We understand that we bring nothing to the table. We understand that we have nothing to offer. We understand that the best things we would even think to bring are worthless and filled with filth. We know that. We understand that. So we come in humility, but not in humble shame. No, we come in humble boldness. We come with boldness. That's the second way that we respond. 
We boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? Because Christ is there making our case before the Father. We have a great high priest who lives to make intercession for his saints. Whoever pleads for us, who delights to plead for us. And so we, so we come with boldness. We come with gratitude. With gratitude. Look at how and what they say. He has done all things well. We give praise and adoration and glory to God for everything. We look around us. It is July 4th in the triangle of North Carolina, and it is like 60-something degrees with low humidity. You did not do that. If you have nothing else to praise God for today, praise God for that. Great gratitude. I'm up here and I'm not sweating. This is awesome. We come with gratitude, with joy in our hearts. And finally, we come proclaiming. And this is something that we can't miss in this text. We can't miss in this text. Now, Danny Aiken said it. I love the way he said it. He said, we cannot excuse the people's disobedience, but we can understand why they disobeyed. I I laughed multiple times this week. You have been deaf and mute from a young age. Jesus gives your ears the ability to hear and your mouth the ability to speak. And then he tells you, hey, by the way, you can't talk about this. Yeah, I think I'm probably going to talk about it. We can't excuse their disobedience, but we can understand. And here is the thing. When we have had a humble, bold, grateful encounter with Christ, we can't help but proclaim it. We can't help but proclaim it. And so, as we see here, let's respond in obedience that God has given us by telling us. He has not told us to keep our mouths shut. He has told us to go and to proclaim and to declare how awesome and great and wonderful He is. So let's be obedient and with joy and humility and gratitude. Let's proclaim the grace of God. Let's be humble, let's be bold, and let's be grateful as we proclaim the kindness and mercy and grace of the one who does all things well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this passage. Father, we thank you for being able to clearly see how kind and compassionate you are because you know all things. And not only do you know all things, Father, You do all things well. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the humility and boldness and gratitude that we see from these people. And Father, may you fill our hearts with joy to proclaim your goodness to everyone that needs to hear it. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.